1: on there as we try to unpack and understand what's going on with potential impeachment investigations in the Ukraine and beyond related to the Ukraine Ukraine and beyond excuse me Anna Edgerton congressional reporter editor now for Bloomberg she joins us from our 991 studio there in the nation's capital and Isaac Boltansky, director of policy research at Compass Point Research and Trading he's on the phone in Washington Anna let me start with you What's the latest, what do people need to know at this point in the day knowing that by the time the show is over, everything could have changed?
2: <laughs> that's right, that's that's about the pace we've been working with so far. So what we're looking at right now is how the State Department is gonna handle requests for current and former State Department employees to testify before House committees this week and next week. We did get a tweet from Mike Pompeo that included the Secretary of State that included a letter to the, the Chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee saying that he was concerned with how committees handled those requests thus far and he's kind of pushing back on the breadth and depth of the documents they had requested and the people that they wanted to testify.
0: So okay Isaac come on in on this because I do wonder if things are progressing too fast or does it all seem logical to you?
3: Well, I don't know if I can use the word logical for anything at this point, but but I I can give you my perspective, which is one from the market perspective. Our clients are hedge funds and mutual funds. And, you know, my sense is that that the market participants view everything that's going on as captivating and compelling, but but from an investment perspective, it's still viewed largely as political theater because I think there's a firm belief that even if there is um, an impeachment vote in the House, which is what I expect, there will not be uh, the necessary votes for conviction and removal from office in the Senate. So from a market perspective, the questions have been more about peripheral issues. How does this inquiry impact um, the USMCA? How does it impact China trade? That's been the focus from from our folks.
0: Anna, wait, come in. Do you agree that it won't make it through in terms of an inquiry in the Senate?
2: I think that's exactly right and also a a good analysis of what it means because – let's say the House does impeach the president, which at this point it looks like they're going to do. It's hard to imagine them not putting articles of impeachment on the floor at some point, maybe even this year. And if they do, it will probably pass with mostly Democratic support. However, it would be a very, very tough threshold to meet in the Senate to get the two-thirds necessary to actually remove the president from office. So while impeachment is important, it's mostly just symbolic. Now, we, you know, we also mentioned what this means for other things. We're not sure whether or not they were going to do the USMCA, a China trade deal anyway. So it's kind of hard to gauge whether or not the stalling of any momentum is because of this impeachment inquiry or if it was going to move ahead regardless.
1: Alright, so Isaac, what does this mean for 2020? Because it felt like until this really came up, the the field was starting to take shape a little bit. Obviously, this is a scandal, as it were, that directly involves, uh, or at least is tied to one of the leading Democratic candidates. What's the ripple effect on the field?
3: Sure. Look, I, I think the, the point I make to clients first and foremost is there's still a lot of time left in this particular ballgame. Um, we still have numerous debates and, and Iowa and New Hampshire are far away. With that being said, I think that this entire Ukraine story is going to weigh on the Biden campaign and anything that weighs on the Biden campaign is positive, in my view, for Senator Warren. And I think that that's how uh, I'm viewing it. I think that's how a lot of investors are viewing it. She's repeatedly warned that the, quote, marriage of authoritarianism and corrupt capitalism is a direct threat to the United States, unquote, which fits into this thread. She was one of the first in the, in the uh, Democratic field to call for impeachment. Um, and so I, I really – the way I'm looking at this is the Ukraine story, at least at the moment, should be viewed as a modative, modest positive for the Warren campaign.
0: So Anna in terms of timetable what how are we expecting the next couple of weeks to go as the house you know proceeds with their impeachment inquiry
2: the house members are in recess this week and next week so they're all back in their districts trying to explain this to constituents for democrats trying to Explain why they're going through this process what was different about these ukraine allegations and for republicans trying to gauge You know where their constituents are in regards to president trump that doesn't mean that the inquiry is stalled as we were seeing right now There are still subpoenas Requests for depositions coming from the three committees that are leading this house foreign affairs house oversight and um, And the intelligence committee, so there is still information that's coming to light this week, including the testimony of the director, um, the uh, inspector general of the intelligence community, and possibly even the whistleblower, him or herself. So there is still action coming on, and it will be interesting when when members get back to see what they've gotten from their constituents, because they're going to have a better gauge for where the American public is, and they're going to bring that back to Washington with them in about a week and a half.
1: All right, we're going to leave it there. Anna Edgerton, congressional reporter for Bloomberg. She joined us on the phone from our or I'm sorry. She joined us from our one studio in Washington, D.C., Isaac Boltansky, Some great context there. He is the director of policy research for Compass Point Research and Trading. He joined us on the phone from Washington, D.C.
0: Right. There potentially are political consequences for everyone involved. Right. right? And I think it is, to some extent, too soon to tell exactly. But uh, we shall see. And we're still, what, a year out from the 2020 elections. A lot can happen from between right. now and then.
1: Well, and at least so far, I just saw a poll that came across while we were talking that the Ukraine scandal hasn't hurt uh, Vice President, former Vice President Biden yet. But we'll see how that plays through. Because, listen, mm-hmm. every time this is brought up. Exactly. Everybody says Biden, you know. And at some point, you do wonder, to Isaac's point, whether that starts to resonate a little bit more.
3: Oh, because-
0: all right, we're really eager to get into this next segment because it's all about food. It's all about disruption. It's all about kind of doing things in a healthier way, which is something that uh, consumers are demanding more and more. Jeff Dunn is CEO of Bolthouse Farms. It has been around for more than 100 years. It's been part of Campbell's. It's not part of Campbell's anymore. He's based in Bakersfield, California. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. You've had quite a trip with this company.
4: Well, it's been a journey An a 100-year-plus company we had it as a private equity company. We mm-hmm. sold it to Campbell's. I ran it for them for a couple of years and then uh, left in 2016. But back at it, we bought the business back just about 100 days ago we closed. And first I'd like to say that, you know, the Bolt test people remember and love is back. It's back doing really three things that built us. The first thing is loving the land, taking care of the land. We're farmers at our core, obviously one of the biggest carrot farmers in North America. The second thing is innovating and disrupting, particularly the beverage space. We built a very big beverage space by being faster and more disruptive than most of our competitors. And the last thing is kind of getting back to do it as a private company, taking a long-term view. You know, Campbell's was great. But it wasn't really a great marriage. And I think as an independent company, we can be much more disruptive than we could as part of a bigger food company.
1: Well, it's very much of the moment for sure. And we've been talking uh, right before we came on air about this is a generational thing. We see it in Mm -hmm. our kids for sure. They want to know where food is coming from. And they are thinking about it literally holistically. What was the catalyst for that, do you think?
4: I think it's digital media. I think it's information now flows seamlessly. Ten years ago with the iPhone, all of a sudden information started flowing, and this is the native generation who grew up with it, so they're used to having that information. And the food system was so complex, so opaque to many consumers, the digital media allowed people to start to ask questions and get answers. And the more they dug, the more they wanted to know. And we see... A fundamental break with millennial consumers versus their parents and their attitudes towards food. They want to know where it comes from, but they want to know what it does to them. Right. And they long-term want to know that it's sustainable for the planet. And if you can't check those boxes, you have a big problem.
0: Is Okay. um, Totally in on your concept. But I'm curious is can we produce food on a grand scale that's necessary for feeding the world and do it sustainably
4: and responsibly? And affordably. And affordably. Um, Those are three different questions, but the short answer is yes. I I think you absolutely can, for for one reason. If you think about plant-based or plant-powered foods versus the analogs they replace, dairy and meat particularly with things like Impossible and beyond, plant-based protein replacements are 25 times more efficient than animal proteins, 25 times more efficient. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is find more effective and and, and uh, efficient ways, not to grow plants, but the right plants. So much of processed food has been kind of a few commodities that have been overused, mm-hmm. corn, soy, wheat, right? Fresh food, and particularly a broader diversity of plants in our diet. Michael Pollan says it best, you want to get healthier, eat more plants, eat less meat. It just is a fact, nothing wrong with meat, but on the, you know, the go forward, we need to get more plants in people's diets any way we can.
1: And so this is quite something you're trying to pull off, which is you sell something, you bring it back. This doesn't happen a lot. Um, what's the high wire act or how much of a high wire act is it? And how much of it is just sort of getting back to basic 100 days in? What are you finding?
4: Well, it's both getting back to basics and a high wire act from this standpoint. You know, this business had a couple tough years, lost 100 million of revenue and 100 million of profit in three years. That was really a function of applying a shelf stable playbook to a fresh business. Mm. We have the longest shelf life we have 60 days, so it requires very fast decision making. We say, you know, decision making in a fresh is perishable. If you don't make the decisions quickly, you got a problem. Very different in shelf stable. That's what really broke the business. So I brought back 75 people in the first 100 days who worked for me before. They know how to run my playbook, and they're already doing it. So that's the recovery piece. We've got to fix the foundational pieces. But then I've also brought a number of people from Silicon Valley who worked in my kind of venture part of my career. I've got multiple careers who are bringing that disruption. So the combination of a stable cash flow... A really great infrastructure with that disruptive product strategy especially, I think, is going to really work for us. So the numbers are better already? They're, no. Well, it, it depends on <laughs> – <laughs> <laughs> no, we have not bottomed out. Uh, but we figure by the first or second quarter of next year, we kind of hit the bottom and we turned because we had to bring in a new team, carve out from Campbell's, a lot yeah. of one-time things. But we have 25 new products we'll launch in January, a new protein keto line, uh, a line of shots, and a line of CBD beverages. So things that were not even in consideration with Campbell's own the business.
0: How tough is it though, um, Jeff, to get the shelf space and, and get because there's a lot of stuff competing it, out there. Just got very about 30 seconds. We have two
4: benefits. Yeah. One is. We're one of the two uh, carrot suppliers in the United States. So basically every large customer is buying from me or my competitor. So there's leverage that you have. So we have leverage. We, and right. we have trucks going to every, every store. Right. Our beverage business has very strong distribution. So for us, it's really about the sales effort. One thing we've done is bring back a direct sales team. We had a brokered sales team, which yeah. was, again, slower. Yeah. The whole theme here is speed to decision-making. That's part of that 75 people we hired. So, we'll
0: give right. you another 100 days and then come back and tell us how things are awesome. going. Awesome. <laughs> All right.
1: Jeff Dunn, CEO of Bold House Farms, hanging with us. And, Jeff, you know, you mentioned sort of your multiple careers, and one of them is as an investor. And I do wonder, from a pure money perspective, what's driving the latest and greatest year because you just got to follow the money to figure that out right
4: yeah following the money is exactly right so think about the venture space last 10 years more money has come in in an ag and food venture true venture than in all time before that because it wasn't a space that got a lot of venture money but with impossible and beyond and others there's been this growing amount of money coming in because globally this is a hot topic for a lot of countries outside the united states so a lot of money's come in a whole new group of entrepreneurs have sprung up. This is about the, the venture ecosystem and they're developing not just products, but whole new technologies in things like genetics and robotics and data that can be applied to the food system very effectively. So I think one of the big changes we have yet to see you know, impossible at McDonald's is like one early tip of the iceberg, but these technologies are coming. We want to be an early adopter at Bolt House.
0: Jeff, what does it mean? Just got about 50 seconds left here. What does it mean for the Campbell's or the Cokes or the big food manufacturers that, yeah, they can buy a, a young company, but it doesn't necessarily shift their whole business? I,
4: I think it, it's a it's a, it's a a very difficult problem for them because unless they adopt these technologies early, which from a risk profile standpoint as a public company is more difficult, yeah. that's why being a private, company it's easier for us to be early adopters but i think they have no choice and you know the ceo mcdonald said he needs a big mac to be as relevant as big tech right. that's the answer they understand what's changing but it's very difficult culturally for them to get there and then the effect of uh, activist investors and short-term itis as a public right. company makes it even more difficult
0: but consumers are demanding the change
4: you better change because the consumer has changed
1: All right. Jeff Dunn is the CEO of Bold House Farms based out in Bakersfield, California, here with us in New York City today. Looking forward to tracking this one because, as we say, it's something we're looking at a lot, whether Mm -hmm. it's food or fashion or sometimes, you know, plant-based fashion.
0: It's all over the place. (laughs) This is Bloomberg. All
1: right. So spoiler alert. We're going to be talking a lot about private equity this week. There are a number yes. of stories in the magazine, a couple big interviews coming up, and let's kick it off with Antoine Drian. He is the chairman of Triago. I've known him for a long time. He's been looking at this business in, from an, multiple perspectives uh, for quite some time, globally especially. Antoine, great to have you back with thank Carol
5: and Thank you very much.
1: All right, so set the stage for us a little bit because it feels like... Private equity is having a bit of a moment right now. Trillions in assets under management. Even the dry powder is manor, man, measured excuse me, in trillions at this point. Why is it so popular with investors?
5: It's popular because performance is there. Um, I guess it's the only asset class with a two-digit return, and that's been the case for the last 10 years. It looks like most people think this is going to be the case for the next 10 years. Uh, that's point one. Point two is that this has become a pretty liquid asset class. Actually, this may sound strange. You know, private equity is private, right? Um, but you can actually uh, use the secondary market to get out of some funds if you wish to, which is a good option. I mean, a few years ago, people didn't want. I mean, LPs didn't want to get in because they were afraid of not being able to get out if they if they needed. So performance plus liquidity plus resilience. Uh, it's, that's, I think those are the three main factors.
0: Antoine, do we have a lot of money, though, private equity money chasing too few deals? And what is that doing then ultimately to valuations? Uh, you know,
5: that's that's the big question. I've been hearing that there's too much money in this asset class for the last, I don't know, maybe 15 years. <laughs> is that your way? Uh, well, at some, point, at some point, it, w- it was true. It will again be true at some point, I guess. I mean, who knows, really? What I know is that PE is only close to 2% of global financial assets. I mean, if you think about it, that's nothing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Yale, for instance, is i believe allocating close to forty percent right. of its endowment to private equities um, so i 'm not suggesting that you know everyone out there should go from two to forty uh, but going from two to five ten uh, seems reasonable so that 's on the that 's on the on the l p side on, on on where the money goes i mean obviously. If people feel there is already too much money with two percent, well, guess what? There, if if it if it happens to become five percent, it's going to be even worse. Right. Uh, I think you still have some niches in the market. You still have a lot of smart people. You have great governance, uh, so I'm not that afraid actually of what, what's happening. I think listed. I think the listed side should be a little bit afraid because you have less IPOs and. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's where that's where the danger is actually, mm-hmm. but not so much for PE.
1: So let's go with that for a second, because we have seen some real uh, sort of breaks in the market in some ways, some differences in public valuations and private valuations. IPOs have been a tough place to be. You look at last week with Peloton. WeWork is a little bit of a a separate issue. But these private valuations versus public valuations, what do you... Where do you see the the disconnect, and, and how does that get rectified, do you think? Well, I
5: think that at the end of the day, it's really supply and demand. And on the PE side, there is you know, a lot of money, as you said, and, and you have a lot of great deals. But still, I mean, there is competition, and prices go up, and there is probably less interest on the listed side. Uh, so prices are going down and, and 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 multiples are going down. So I think this is the main reason. Now you're right. I mean there should be some kind of illiquidity, uh, you know, risk that is not factored in uh, in in pricing. But I mean it's still you know it's 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 a great asset class, and I think many people are jumping in. And my feel fi- my feeling is that it's definitely not too late.
0: Um, what does it mean for the retail investor who can't necessarily tap into private equity so easily?
5: Well, that's been a big story for the last five years. I think many uh, people are, are feeling that the retail money should definitely be part of the game. And there's really no reason why retail investors can buy you know, listed stocks and not private stocks. And so we're seeing some initiatives now. You know, some of the large funds out there are, have started um, funds where they can take smaller amounts uh, you're also seeing a lot of feeders that are run by banks, etc., and some of the large asset managers are starting uh, to put programs together to actually uh, help these retail investors invest in funds. So, I think this is also going to be part of this, you know, two percent number going back to maybe five or ten. There we'll will see be more of it. there will be a lot of retail money, I believe, right. uh, but funneled into you know specialist vehicles and other other stuff like that.
1: So as you look at this market from a macro perspective, but also talk to some of the big managers, we are at a very political moment in our world. And certainly here in the United States, as we look at a a 2020 presidential election, Elizabeth Warren and others have really set private equity in their sights from a critical perspective. What's the political risk for private equity right now?
5: Well, there is a political risk. There is a regulation risk. There are you know many risks coming from outside of the industry itself uh, it 's an industry where you know where regulation is actually already there because it 's for professional investors and what I mean by that is that you know you cannot go to professional Lps without being very disciplined and without having very proper you know, uh, governance, reporting et cetera so this is this is an industry where that is pretty much auto regulated uh but of course i mean if if some people want to you know look at what 's happening uh i mean it may be negative surprises for the for the industry i'm not suggesting that that something bad is happening, definitely not but i mean if if you know paperwork et cetera is probably not something that this industry is is looking for.
1: Well, it could be higher taxes, you know, could be a little Mm -hmm. bit more regulation, as you say, that puts some more parameters because in the wake of the financial crisis, you know, banks got a lot more regulated, hedge funds got a lot more attention, but private equity didn't really.
5: But private equity didn't because I think there were basically no casualties mm. within the PE space and I think it's actually a very good, you know, margin of they they bring a very good margin of safety. Mm. They can hold for a long time. Uh, They are very strict about governance, Uh, so, I mean, it's it's probably a a good thing that they're there when things turn sour.
0: In terms of opportunities within where you're finding to commit potentially new money in the private equity world, where is it?
5: You mean geographically or?
0: Geographically or even industry-wide?
5: I think what what we're seeing is is uh, the, the sector specialists are raising more and more money. I think this this industry is becoming a, a a space for people who who know what they're doing. I mean this may sound strange but it's not only a question of you know leveraging and deleveraging etc it's it's really also a question of Really n- knowing what you're doing and investing in certain industries, certain companies, and adding value, as everyone says, but for real. Right. Um,
0: so specializing it, really, and
5: then yeah, yeah. And and actually doing efforts to it. To the Probably company. smaller funds, also. Yeah. All
1: right. Great to catch up with you, Antoine. Drian is chairman of Triago, also the founder of Palico, uh, based in Paris, but a global citizen, to say the least. He's here in New York with us. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek.
3: The
0: answer, my
6: friend, is
0: blowing in. So I've talked a lot about alternative energy in the last uh, few weeks. That's certainly a focus of uh, the UN General Assembly and, of course, of the Bloomberg Global Business Forum. Alternative energy, no doubt about it, has made inroads in many parts of the world. And yet, why is it so hard to build offshore wind power in the United States? Writing about that is Jennifer DeLuigi. She is environmental regulations reporter at Bloomberg News. She is in our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Joel Weber Bloomberg Business Week editor, he's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Uh, in New York. So let's talk about this. I mean, I feel like, you know, alternative energy, Joel, we know it's made some great inroads, but it, there's still some, you know, stumbling blocks.
7: Yeah, the one place that we can't, the U.S. can't seem to make enough wind power uh, is offshore. Onshore, not a problem. Yeah. It's cheap. Wind right. farms all over the place. The only offshore wind farm in the U.S. is right off of Block Island in Rhode Island. small. And every time that new ones come up, they get rejected, including just recently. Jennifer, what happened?
8: Well, so this uh, project off the coast of Massachusetts, Vineyard Wind, uh, was getting really close to uh, a critical approval at the Interior Department uh, when uh, federal regulators ordered up some more review of the project. Uh, basically, they want to look at concerns around fishing, uh, potentially uh, meaning a project a- approval won't come until March uh, of next year, maybe later. It's a big blow to the developers because you know timelines matter, and they have a tax credit hanging in the balance here.
7: And what is the timeline for that? Time? tax credit? Uh,
8: it, it depends on uh, how they structure it. There's a way for the project to uh, still capture the tax credit uh, if they get into construction in the next, uh, you know, eight months or so. Um, but it really, uh, the, the timelines for construction were so tight and uh, because they have to uh, shut down operations during times of whale migrations and such. So there's just a limited uh, window for them to, to get these turbines in the ground. And so, Jennifer, how much of this
1: is sort of not in my backyard? How much of it is political? What's the resistance as you look across all these different elements?
8: so NIMby is definitely a part of this in the sense that after Cape wind uh, there, there was this famous project off the coast of Massachusetts uh, that that uh, failed very famously several years ago called Cape wind and right. after that and that was largely because of local opposition folks uh, very powerful uh, entities did not want it, want this in their sight lines and after that uh, developers and federal regulators decided the best course was to move further offshore to take these wind turbines and get away from the coasts uh, the problem was with that is that that pushed them in the middle of prime fishing territory it put them into shipping lanes military uh, areas uh, used by the navy so suddenly you removed one challenge uh, from the the coastal residents and you created all of these others and that's exactly what we're seeing play out here and with all of these projects that are waiting in the wings on the east coast what's
7: ironic here though is that consumers when you ask them where they want their energy from even on the east coast and especially in new england will say offshore wind
8: Absolutely, uh, you know we we see this across the board with renewable energy. Uh, you know, there's an appetite for clean energy. Uh, it just doesn't translate when it's going to be in your backyard when you're going to feel the direct impacts of that development.
7: And so, when you think about, I mean, to me, one of the things that's interesting here is that the the federal government is the one speaking up here. Who are all the the various yeah. groups of of constituents that that they're um, Speaking up on behalf of to to slow this down and actually, you know, reassess the projects.
8: They are essentially elevating the concerns of the fishing industry. I mean, there's a at least $1.4 billion fishing industry along the eastern seaboard uh, that has very powerful uh, interest and advocates saying you could completely decimate some of our catches. You could uh, hurt scallop catches in in the northeast around New York with some of these projects. And even vineyard wind will affect uh, some of this uh, activity. So, so. They essentially have uh, elevated those concerns in the federal government, and uh, which is ordering additional review of maybe the turbines should be placed in a slightly different orientation so that uh, their uh, trailing lines don't get ensnared by them. Maybe there's a way to ensure that these wind turbines and fishing can truly uh, coexist.
7: So one of the things that's interesting here, Jennifer, is that... Um, this is, seems to be like a, almost like a uniquely American problem because in Europe, they seem to have plenty of offshore wind. So what's, what's the difference?
8: Well, so Europe uh, got started way earlier than we did. Uh, And the reason is, frankly, real estate. Uh, They just, uh, European countries got interested in clean energy uh, and set goals for that way earlier than us. Um, But because of limited real estate, they had to go offshore uh, to to satisfy those goals. And they also, the government subsidized uh, the large offshore installations generally. There is an upside to the fact that we're playing catch-up. The costs have come down for these projects, so the U.S. can take advantage of all of the technological and uh, innovation and the uh, drawdown in costs over the last decade or two. Well,
0: Jennifer, just 20 seconds here. Ultimately, do you, folks who are watching this, investors, I mean, will it be follow the money? If there's money to be made, will it ultimately create
8: this industry here in the United States? Developers haven't lost enthusiasm for this. That's certainly their expectation. This build-out is coming. It's just a matter of time.
1: All right. Well, it's a really interesting story and timely, to say the least, as we talk about uh, all these big issues. Jennifer Deloey is environmental regulations reporter for Bloomberg. She joined us from our ninety-nine-one studio in D.C. And Joel Weber, he's, of course, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He was here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you both so much. I'm driving my car.
5: Is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the on on Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Doug Sandler, global strategist at Riverfront Investment Group, on the phone from Richmond, Virginia. So, Doug, nice to have you here on this Tuesday, a day where investors seem to be worried about the latest batch of economic news, specifically seeing weakness in the U.S. manufacturing sector. How worried are you about the economic and consequently the market outlook?
6: I I think I'd be worried if it wasn't for the cavalry that's coming, right? Um, So, you know, manufacturing data has been weakening, um, but we know that the Fed has cut rates twice. Uh, We know the Fed remains on call to do more if necessary and has been shown a willingness to act. Um, Likewise, I think there's a lot that's been held back by our, you know, current trade negotiations. And to the extent that that rhetoric starts to get better, which we've started to see in the past couple of weeks, and that's next week or the week after we get the uh, China contingency coming to the U.S. Um, these are all things that I think get policymakers to um, temper their rhetoric, right? Market's weak. We know it's because of trade. I think ultimately you'll end up seeing some more positive trade uh, language coming out of the White House.
1: Well, and what's interesting is, I mean, you're now really leaning into, dare I say, all of what's going on in this sort of political and policy, world, you know, most people I feel like that we talk to, were are like, well, I'm going to sort of ignore it as much as I can and kind of invest around it. You're investing into it in a lot of ways. Tell us about that decision.
6: Yeah. Yeah. and it's, it's Our investing is not based on who is in office. Our investing simply says that earnings are driven uh, by a number of factors. Um, and, you know, one of the two, two of the more important factors in the past was research and development spending and spending on capital equipment. Um, those drive earnings less today than they did in the past. And one of the big uh, drivers of earnings is lobbying spend hmm. because as Washington gets more involved in, uh, in, in businesses, you find companies that do lobbying are at the, on the, um, at the table versus being on the menu. And that's one of the big things that I think is maybe underappreciated by Wall Street analysts is lobbying intensity is something that's really important. We've partnered with a company, uh, Strategus out of New York, and they're a policy analyst, Dan Clifton, who's been running a strategy like this for several years. And what he's found is the intensity of a company's lobbying makes a difference to earnings down the road, and analysts aren't capturing that.
0: That's interesting. And you guys adopt that strategy, and you do find it pays off?
6: Well, I mean, we just started the portfolios. We've looked Mm -hmm. at, you know, how it's done in the past, and it's been a a decent strategy. Um, But one of the great things about it is that it's not administrative sensitive. So every administration has its issues, and companies understand those issues and will lobby, um, you know, for or against them. So if you get a change in president in 2020, the companies in the portfolio are going to change. And as a result, um, you know, because – Each administration has their own agenda. So it's not hedging political risk, but it's trying to stay in the groove with where politics are.
1: And so when you think about sort of geopolitical risk uh, across the board, you know, we could go deep on probably four or five different areas of the world, be it. Brexit, be it the Middle East, be it Korea, be it China, like three or four uh, different ways, even, you know, going to what we're seeing here in North America. How do you rank them in terms of what may have the biggest impact on what you choose to have or not have in your portfolio?
6: Well, it's going to be really company specific. So you're going to see overweights of healthcare. care. You see overweights of defense companies that are just kind of always in there and lobbying for their... Uh, their best intentions. Um, I think this oversized political um, impact to the markets has a lot to do with the fact that economic growth is just slow around the world.
7: Mm.
6: And when economic slow, growth is slow around the world, it's okay for stock markets because you don't get central banks stomping the brakes and um, you, know, you don't see bubbles building. But what you don't get is the American workers and workers around the world are not happy. When they're not happy, they change administrations, and they've done that six times out of the last seven elections. So that kind of political volatility creates a lot of uncertainty for companies, and that's what we're trying to capture is let's just stay in the groove. We don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican necessarily. What we do care is companies are going to lobby on, those, on the agenda for those candidates.
0: So, all right, so in on healthcare, in on defense, no matter what, where do you not want to be that you think might have some political consequences?
6: Well, companies that don't tend to lobby tend to be more in the uh, utility industry. Um, technology tends to under-lobby. So it's not that we would stay away from those, but just from this portfolio perspective, um, lob- lobbying is not a big part of their earnings, so this portfolio is all about trying to capture earnings growth that analysts aren't always recognize or already recognizing.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that about technology because it feels like that could change over the next six, twelve, twenty-four months. Certainly, as you've got uh, increasing amount of spending, maybe it's from a low base from technology companies who may see more and more of a threat from a regulatory perspective, getting called up to Capitol Hill, more and more noise being made around social media, especially is that something that could end up in your portfolio at some point?
6: Certainly. So, you know, it's it's really trying to be an objective process where we measure lobbying intensity through a proprietary formula. And you know, there is no um, subjective oversight on that, meaning, you know, if there's a company on there that we don't like, if it's meeting the criteria, it's still going to be in the portfolio because there's so many things we don't know. Um, I think one of the arguments is that technology companies do lobby, but they've been spending it in maybe the wrong ways. Interesting. Um, so the fact that they keep getting called in to Washington means that they haven't done a very good job of selling their message. And companies that... Two companies may do the exact same thing, but one might uh, sell its message, the other one doesn't, and you'll find that they're going to be treated totally different uh, on Capitol Hill.
1: All right, we're going to leave it there. Interested to see how this strategy pays off, Uh, you'll have to come back and tell us how it's going. Doug Sandler is global strategist for Riverfront Investment Group.